0: Hello and welcome to Lexicon from Interesting Engineering with me, your host, Roland Ellison. Our guest this week is Jason Wright, a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at Penn State. Jason is a member of the Center for Exoplanets and Habitable Worlds and director of the Penn State Extraterrestrial Intelligence Center. If there is indeed something out there, Jason is one of the people who will know how to find it. So let's get into it. Hi, Jason. Welcome to Lexicon. It's great to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. I wanted to start by asking you um, what initially sparked your interest in physics and astronomy and how that's led you to where you are today.
1: Yeah, I, um, I've wanted to be an astronomer for as long as I can remember, actually, when I was a little kid in, in, in grade school. So my earliest memories are reading astronomy books in my grade school classroom and library and stuff. So um, I just feel really lucky that uh, I never lost that interest, and that uh, when I got to school, uh, I was uh, still interested in it once I got to see how much physics was involved and all the math, and I still loved it. And um, and now as a professional astrophysicist, that it's a job that, uh, a job I enjoy, and that uh, I think I'm good at. And so, um, uh, yeah i don't know what got me into it i'm I'm one of the lucky ones that just found what i wanted to do first and was able to make it happen.
0: i know that the search for signs of extraterrestrial life and industry are one of your sort of areas of specialism can you give our listeners an overview as to what that work entails and how you determine what to look for and prioritize in that search
1: yeah it's a really big a really big problem and just trying to figure out what to look for and what to prioritize is a big part of that puzzle um and it's one that we're all still very actively working on but but you know generally um life has a lot of ways it can make itself known but not very many ways it can make itself known uh you know if it's if it's 10 light years away and so we have to think about what we not just what might it do but what might life do that we could detect so if you think about Trying to prove that Earth has life from ten light years away, like you know, if 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 we were ten, on a, on a star ten light years away, looking back at the solar system, how would you know Earth had life? What are the signs there? And um, they're they're pretty subtle. Um, if you just want to know life existed at all, you might be able to tell that there was ozone in our atmosphere and some trace amounts of methane in our atmosphere. You might notice that the um, the Earth um, absorbs red light really, really well, and tends to reflect green light really well. Uh, and that's because of chlorophyll. And you might infer that there was, you know, plant life absorbing sunlight because of that. Or you might look at the atmosphere and see that it contains trace amounts of chlorofluorocarbons and say, hey, those aren't natural, that's that's an industrial chemical. Or you might notice that there are radio waves emitting from the earth that, uh, that really shouldn't be there unless someone has built broadcast antennae and are broadcasting radio waves into space like we are. Uh, Just, you know, AM, FM radio, that kind of stuff. Mm. So um, those are both ways that we might go finding life. And so we try to think about what technological things might life do that we would be able to notice. And sometimes that means thinking about what we do and looking for that. And sometimes that means extrapolating on what we think other species might do you know, given more time and resources than we've had so far to develop technology and looking for that.
0: Last week we had Mike boland Colchin on and he spoke about how the James Webb Space Telescope works and, and some of the findings and the science in real time that's that's come off the back of that. This must be a really exciting time to be working in your field. What have you found to be the most interesting observations to come from JWST so far?
1: Yeah. I mean it's just stunning what it's able to do. Um the, the spectra that it's been able to take of brown dwarfs um, just confirming their atmospheric composition have, uh, have just been incredible. Um, I know that my um, colleagues that study cosmology and extragalactic astronomy have been scratching their heads over how bright some of the most distant galaxies in the universe are, that we didn't even know these things were there. And now we're observing them, and, and they're much brighter and more numerous than the cosmologists had predicted and so some of them are worried that it just completely violates our whole understanding of how the universe formed others are confident that um, it's it's you know some model parameter that that we had just overestimated our our certainty on and so that's been really exciting to watch them um watch them try and solve that that big puzzle uh, and then uh, i'm excited about all the observations that are happening of exoplanets as well it will be a lot harder um, and we'll have to probably wait a while before we get some really great exoplanet results because um, uh, exoplanets are really small and hard to detect. But I'm excited to see if we can detect uh, atmospheres around terrestrial exoplanets.
0: One of the things that um, is, is part of your work in, in terms of what you were talking about earlier is the 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 bio signatures and and the techno signatures I think we right. talked about it with with the sort of chlorophyll and you know some of the industrial waste chemicals, I guess that you might might be able to detect could could you explain a little bit about the the differences between them and and how you look for them?
1: yeah, so um yeah we were ta- I mentioned just a bit ago about the ozone and the the methane mm-hmm. uh, those uh now ozone and methane oxygen these things exist without life, they exist in nature. Um, but the reason Earth's atmosphere has so much oxygen is life. Life makes that oxygen. Um, and uh, because it's got all that oxygen, it also has ozone. Now, in uh, an atmosphere with a lot of oxygen, you don't expect to see very much methane. Uh, oxygen destroys methane you know, every time lightning strikes. So all the methane should go away. And so you have this disequilibrium. You have two things in the atmosphere that shouldn't be coexisting which means something must be maintaining that disequilibrium. And in the case of Earth, plant life is making the oxygen and animal life is making the methane as part of this, this ecological cycle of metabolism. And so you know, thinking generally, we might look for similar sorts of signs of disequilibrium in the atmospheric chemical composition of distant exoplanets. And so that's the dream. That's what we'd really love to do. Um, we also might be able to detect things like chlorophyll in reflection. That'll be a lot harder. That's not something JWST will probably be able to do, but perhaps uh, a couple flagship telescopes down the line, we will have a giant one that can actually image individual planets and, and do that sort of work as well. For technosignatures, uh, I mean, the sky's the limit. There's so many different things we could look for. One, one thing about technosignatures is that um, they could be very big. Um, The, uh, you know, just in terms of atmosphere, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has gone up by something like 20% because of human activity. So we can have major effects on our atmosphere and we can do it very quickly in just the span of a couple hundred years. Life generally works slower than that to like, you know, alter atmospheric chemistry. Um, You know, we can build bigger radio transmitters. We could even build large things in space that you might be able to see. 10 light years away. Um, we have lots of science fiction to guide us that says that given enough time and engineering and resources, we might be able to do grand things that would be obvious across the galaxy. And so we need to uh, keep an open mind about what those things could be. Uh, it's just its just a much larger landscape because we don't even know if we have to be looking at exoplanets. Maybe, maybe we'll detect things in interstellar space. Maybe we'll detect things where there are no planets um it's hard to say so it's exciting but it's also you know it's very big where do you look first
0: yeah just in in terms of techno signatures part of that is is the possibility of intercepting deliberate messages sent by extraterrestrial civilizations Um, yeah that's
1: that's right i mean um like i said in my example at the top of the program you could imagine someone would detect our deliberate transmissions that we're sending to each other Mm. off the earth you could also imagine uh, that they might detect our deliberate transmissions to Mars. We send strong radio signals to Mars all the time when we talk to all of our robots and rovers and and orbiters that are, you know, all over Mars. We like to joke that Mars is the only planet we know of inhabited entirely by robots, um, and they communicate back with us. They send radio si- transmissions back our way, and you know, um, those aren't super tightly focused transmission beams. So if if someone were behind Mars, then we would when we communicate with Mars, they might be able to receive the signals intended for the rovers. Um, but you know, it's also possible that someone's just saying hi. It's possible that 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 there are species that transmit uh, communication in case anyone's out there to hear it. So, for instance, when we launch interplanetary probes that leave the solar system. Uh, we put plaques and things on them the the, the pioneer plaques the voyager plaque the golden record that went on voyager and uh, these are ostensibly messages to any any species that might find these things in interstellar space in the distant future um and so it's kind of the sort of thing we do we leave commemorative plaques for future generations and things like that as well on earth um so it's possible someone is transmitting um, radio signals for us to hear uh, and, uh, that, that would be probably the easiest thing to find because it would be something that was intended for us to, to yeah. understand. So if someone's doing that, it's our best bet to look for something like that. Uh, but if, if no one's doing that, then we need, yeah, as you say, to look maybe more for, um, eavesdropping.
0: Yeah. And so apart from radio waves, are there other types of, I mean, I guess it's sort of unknown unknowns really, but are, are there other types of techno signatures that researchers, could or or do actively look for?
1: Yeah, for sure, lots. Um, I mean, we mentioned atmospheric technosignatures. We might look for chemical compositions of atmospheres that are unnatural. We don't have to stick to radio waves. Uh, The electromagnetic spectrum is really broad. Um, People have pointed out that the infrared is a really good place to do interstellar transmission. It's a little trickier from the ground on Earth to do that because our atmosphere doesn't have a lot of transparency in the infrared but um but it has some um and yeah once you're in space you don't you don't care about that and so maybe we should be looking for infrared radiation in which case you'd probably want to use something like a laser and so there are there are programs uh going on right now to look for um laser lines uh coming from other stars that might be indicative of that kind of communication other people have argued for different parts of the Electromagnetic spectrum, people have argued that maybe we should really be broad minded and think about neutrinos or gravitational waves. Maybe that's how they'd communicate. Um, and then we can also look for um, things like uh, the, the, the industry itself. So, you know, if you use energy, uh, you can't destroy it, you, you have to give it back somewhere. So, just like your computer is doing all of this very cool work to so listen to this podcast, um, it's using energy to do that. But almost all that energy is coming out uh, as heat. It's warming up your computer or whatever device you're using to listen to this. And Mm -hmm. it's radiating away. And So anytime you use technology, you're using energy in some way. But ultimately, that energy is probably going to come out as heat. And so we could look for that. We can look for stars that are giving off more heat than they should, implying that there's stuff around it that's capturing that starlight doing something with it and radiating it as heat. Now, most of the time, that's going to turn out to be like asteroid belts and things like that, which mm. warm and, and give off heat. Um, but typically, old stars like the sun don't have you know, lots and lots of asteroids. And so uh, if we can find stars that have too much heat, uh, the, that's something we could follow up to see what's going on. Why does that star have so much radiation?
0: the Fermi paradox raises questions about the absence of detectable extraterrestrial civilizations despite the vastness of the universe. What are your thoughts on, on this paradox, and how does it inform uh, your searches?
1: Yeah, so the, the Fermi paradox is named after a conversation in 1950 that Enrico Fermi had at Los Alamos with some some colleagues, and they were talking about all these ufo stories that had started to come out after the roswell incident and uh fermi was just musing about you know why aren't there lots of ufos flying all over the place like you know where are where are all of the aliens in their spacecraft um it shouldn't be that hard to build an interplanetary interstellar craft so why aren't they here um and that was that was the paradox now i mean there's a lot of answers to that question um i mean there's a lot of stars. You would need a lot of ships to visit them all. Um, maybe mm. stellar travel is just super hard and it hardly ever happens if it happens at all. Um, maybe they've been here lots of times and they just never stick around. Um, there's a lot of things you can imagine for reasons why they wouldn't be visiting us right now. Um, so, you know, it's fun to think about. But if you want to know, you know, if they're out there, just thinking about it isn't going to get you there. You actually have to go look.
0: Could you discuss the importance of considering, considering different perspectives, such as anthropologists and indigenous scholars in, in the search for extraterrestrial life? Yeah. How, how can these perspectives help us avoid biases and, and stereotypes and just think that everyone's developed in the same way as humankind and, and, and right. life on Earth?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, you read the original Papers from the field of SETI from the 1960s, written in the Soviet Union, written in the United States, or in Europe, um, and you can really tell that they're expecting to find things a lot like um, their cultures that they're in, or even earlier. Uh, with the very some of the very first attempts at radio communication were made by um, people like Nikola, uh, Nikola Tesla, uh, who believed that he was receiving radio signals from Mars from someone using similar. Uh, equipment very similar to his equipment. And so it's very easy to fall into the trap of imagining that aliens out there might be just like us using technology, just like ours, for Mm. reasons that we imagine humans use the technology. But it's really just kind of, you know, how my particular country uses technology. We imagine that species out there, you know, might expand to other stars for the reasons that we read in our science fiction novels. Which are, you know, really ultimately about the cultures we live in today, not about what real aliens might do. And so, you know, we want to get out of out of that headspace. We want to get out of um, uh, the well, Carl Sagan called Earth chauvinism, assuming that aliens will be like Earthlings. But also, even more parochially, just get out of the idea that that the way that species will organize themselves into communities and civilizations and develop technology is the way we imagine our culture does it. So anthropologists are great at this. They're, they're one of their big jobs is to try and develop a more objective view of how humans work and interact. Um, and so it can be really enlightening to talk to them. One of the more, um, uh, well, one of the perspectives you see in those old descriptions is that if we encounter uh, you know, a, a species out there in the galaxy. The species will almost certainly be far older than us, and that's true. But, you know, and if they can come visit us or do something we notice, that their technology will be much more advanced than ours. And it'll certainly be bigger because you got to do something really, you know, ostentatious to be noticed. But then we map that onto these ideas of human progress. And we say, oh, it'll be just like when, you know, Columbus visited the new world and he had all this advanced technology and they were very primitive. And that's what the contact will be like. And then all the all the anthropologists just start shaking their heads like, wait a second, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. You've made so many leaps of logic there and you don't even notice you've done it. Uh, and so it's been very nice to, um, for me, to talk to them and get them to broaden my mind about those sorts of narratives and they've pointed out for instance that um that the the native americans had a lot of technology that the europeans simply did not notice they they were there you know they they just visited this new world with these 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 people that they thought of as being very alien um, and that had all of this technology and just completely missed it couldn't see that you know that the, all the agriculture that they had done because it didn't look like a European agriculture. They thought yeah. that's the way the plants grew, and that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, the uh, keeping that broad mind is something that I think is very useful as we start to think about what might be out there, so that we don't guess wrong about what we're looking for uh, based on. Uh, what are, you know, what we've done as humans, or worse, our misunderstandings about the way humans work?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: and so, uh, anyway, it's, I, I think that's very valuable. And you mentioned indigenous scholars' scholarship. They that that's a, a another aspect of this that has been very valuable. I think the indigenous scholars um, that have addressed these issues uh, have uh, also helped us keep a, a broad mind in that way.
0: Well, I guess yeah. I mean, if we if we sort of fail to understand how our own civilization has, has grown, uh, <laughs> it's going to be even harder to to yeah. understand extraterrestrial civilizations, right? Probably onto the more exciting side of things. Like, if evidence of extraterrestrial life or technology were discovered, um, presumably that'd be a very exciting day for you. Um, mm-hmm. What or, or perhaps terrifying? I don't know. What what would be the next steps? for researchers and and how would the the scientific community verify and study these findings
1: it really depends on what we find i mean if we find that there's some distant galaxy with a lot of industry in it that you know might be all we ever know (laughs) and so you know that'll be a cool kind of thing but there might not really be much to still have to go find more and study those instead i mean we'll we'll follow up whatever it is we find um Uh, But that might be a very slow, and and it might feel very anticlimactic. Um, Mm. The extreme other side uh, would be that we found some sort of active communicative probe in the solar system. Um, And we, you know, we don't have a very good census of small things that orbit the sun. Um, You know, the asteroids we find tend to be, you know, many kilometers across. Right. And so, uh, you know, there could be all sorts of spacecraft all over the solar system, and we wouldn't know it. Um, And if we were to find one that was communicative, that like, you know, we pinged it with radio, it pinged us back. uh, You know, it gave us the Encyclopedia Galactica. You know, talking to us with its AI or whatever. That would that would be potentially profound because we could have a conversation. The light travel time is short, and so we could request information and get it back. the 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 prospect for physical contact is then there we can launch a ship to go interact with it it could come here um and yeah at that point you know we have to start making very important decisions about how we communicate and who speaks for earth and whether to interact with it and whether it might be potentially dangerous in some way mm. um and uh and you know that i think that would be something where it would take a lot more care and uh raise a, a lot more profound ethical questions about how we proceed. Um, in terms of follow-up and stuff, uh for whatever we find, the the problem with SETI has always been confirmation. If you just see something weird and you're like, hey, that looks like it might have been aliens, and then you can't follow it up. It never happens again. Mm. That's challenging to deal with. Um you would then need to set up a big survey to catch more of them so that you could follow them up better. And so the famous wow signal that was discovered um, at Ohio State um, was, you know, it was just what they were looking for. It was a powerful transmission of some kind. Mm. And we have no way of following it up. We have no way of knowing what it was. I mean, we can point at that big region of the sky it might have come from and hope it happens again. And so people do that. Um, But follow-up has always been the big challenge. So um, now there are multiple Radio SETI and Laser SETI projects around the world, and we are starting to coordinate. You know, if someone finds something, how quickly will we know? And how quickly can we get an independent uh, site uh, following up to see if they
0: see it as well? And so does that even come from you know, people spotting stuff in their gardens or, you know, is it like even on a sort of consumer level, like what is the reporting structure for for that kind of thing? When does it become like, that's just some conspiracy theorist weirdo or and that's, this is like something serious that we need to look into, I guess. What's the qualifier?
1: Well, I mean, in terms of people seeing things with their eyes or capturing it with their camera phones or something like that, I mean, people have been looking at, the sky and keeping track of stuff that happens in Earth's atmosphere for you know tens of thousands of years. Yeah, And so, um, I mean, if there were flying saucers going around by now, especially with all the cameras we have, you know, by now we'd have something more, um, than, than, you know, the, the, the UFO stories that, that we hear mm. very specific to certain parts of the world. They're not seen everywhere. It's, it's, it's not a uniquely American phenomenon, but it's definitely, happens in the united states much more often because presumably the roswell incident and all of the you know all of the the celebrity that that got um no when i'm talking about follow up this is where we've measured things with scientific instruments mm. and know that it has come from you know beyond earth's atmosphere and we yeah. know that it has to be technological And the problem is that Earth does a lot of technological things and we make a lot of radio waves. We're very loud when we're right here in the middle of the radio din. Uh, And those can leak into our instruments very easily because they're so sensitive. Mm. That's almost always what we find is that this is some transmitter on Earth that has just leaked into our our telescopes. Right. Uh, And there's just no way to prevent that. So, um, uh, but when we find something and we're confident that it came from space and not the ground, it would be good if we could immediately get another site on earth to look at the same place at the same time. And then in a different radio frequency environment. So if we detect something at, at Green Bank in West Virginia in the United States to have um, the, uh, the the telescopes in California confirm that they see it as well because um, if if it's coming from space, they should both be able to see it. And if it's coming from the ground, well, that's going to only be relevant at one of those two sites.
0: Great, Jason. Well, listen, thanks, thanks very much for joining us today. I think that's that's all we have time for on this podcast, but I'm, I'm sure we'd love to have you back on again at some point just because it's such a a huge topic to, to discuss and something that I think is really going to be engaging for, for our listeners. So yeah, uh, thanks fine. very much for coming on. My pleasure. Big thanks to Jason for his time on the podcast this week and to all of you for listening. Please make sure you leave a review and subscribe to Lexicon for future episodes. If you or someone you know would like to appear on this podcast, please get in touch with me via LinkedIn or via our website. Until next time, it's goodbye for now.